All right, let's open our Bibles this morning and let's do that to the book of 2 Samuel and chapter 3. Our text this morning is going to be chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. The topic we'll find there is this. David amasses six wives during his seven years as king over Judah in Hebron. The title of our message is The First Six Wives Club. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to approach your word with reverence and awe, but with an understanding, Lord, that you're here to speak to us, that you want to talk to us, you want to reveal to us your love and your grace, your mercy, your kindness and gentleness. You want to show us how jealous you are of us, Lord, and how you keep us and protect us. Even through the trials and the afflictions, Lord, that you've allowed in our lives, you're there to walk with us and reveal yourself. And Lord, in every portion of Scripture, whether it's clear or obscure, we believe that you can talk to us and that you have a message just for us, just for me, just for each of my brothers and sisters, just for our church, and just for those who are here that don't know you, Lord. That message, of course, is that you are their Savior, that you died on the cross and rose from the dead, that they might live forever by confessing their sin and believing on you. And so, Lord, wherever we're at in our walk or outside of the kingdom of God, wherever we're at, I pray that you would reach us, Lord, with your love. Because of your love we live, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. It's all too easy to criticize the church. Our church and all churches have flaws because our church and all churches have one thing in common. People attend them. It's like the anecdote I've heard a hundred times. A Christian is witnessing to someone and inviting them to their church. The person protests by saying there are too many hypocrites in the church to which the Christian responds, then you might as well come, one more won't make a difference. (laughs) And it's true, we're flawed, whether we're hypocrites. I mean, every one of us has flaws, whether we're Christian or non-Christian. The church isn't a place for perfect people. There are no perfect people. So before you criticize the church, you really should carefully consider at least two things. First of all, you are the church. The church is not an organization, it's an organism. It's comprised of individual believers who have fellowship with one another. We're all connected with one another. One of the illustrations used in the Bible to describe the church is that we are each members of one another the way our physical bodies are comprised of various members like hands and feet and arms and legs. When you criticize the church, you're criticizing yourself and your own brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And secondly, Jesus looks upon the church as his betrothed bride, as his fiance. I don't know any I don't know about you, but I don't think it's a good idea to speak badly of someone's fiance, especially if that someone is the risen savior, the son of God who is daily working to cleanse us and to present us faultless before his father in heaven. Jesus sees us as we will be one day perfected in his love. Now, I'm going to talk about Christians and churches succumbing to the methods of the world, but I want to do it in such a way that serves as more of a reminder than a criticism. 2 Samuel chapter 3 presents two men, David and Abner, who are influenced by and who employ methods of the world. We don't want to be like them, not at home and not in God's house. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, 
don't succumb to the world's methods as you build your household. And number two, don't succumb to the world's methods as you build in God's household. Let's take a look first of all at David and the household that he was building as the king of Judah. Ask anyone what David's big sin was and they will likely say it was his adultery with Bathsheba. Truth be told, he'd been sinning long before she came along. David had multiple wives. David was so used to taking another wife that when he spotted Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, he had no hesitation taking another man's wife. God had made it clear all the way back in the time of Moses that a king especially was not to have multiple wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17 Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Pretty clear. Nevertheless, we read in these opening verses of six wives in the first few years of his reign as king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And so let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Six wives, and as if that wasn't enough, drop down to verse 13 through 16 for just a minute. I'll read them and then tell you what's going on there. David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, son of Laish. And her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Abner, who commanded the armies of the rival king, Ishbosheth, wanted to defect to David. David's condition was that he get his first wife, Michael, back. She'd been taken by her dad, King Saul, and given to another man while David was a fugitive in exile. Now, David already had six wives, even though he and Michael were never legally divorced. Under Mosaic law, there was a principle that if you became the wife of another man, you were not to return to a previous husband. And we also see in this passage that Michael's current husband loved her. And so there's a tendency for us to look at that and think, well, David just wants to make things right. This is the love of his life. This is Michael and he wants his wife back. But in reality, that was not what was happening at all. Uh, we don't know all of his motives, but I'm willing to say that it was wrong for him to ask for Michael based on Deuteronomy, which also says, Hey, if you, if you get divorced or if you end up with another man, don't leave that man for another to go back to your previous husband. And, you know, we think, uh, and rightfully so, differently about marriage than th these guys did in a tribal society. Women have a few more rights now than they did back then. Uh, 
you know, we read about King Saul just giving his daughter to this other man, but it's clear that he loved her and, and, and was providing a good life for her. And so David has six wives and he says, yeah, and I want Michael back too. He's multiplying wives for himself. It was all just wrong because in Deuteronomy it says, neither shall the king multiply wives for himself. What do we think about polygamy? Another rhetorical question. Keep your opinions to yourself, please. <laughs> I don't really want to know. Uh, but it is a good question since traditional marriage is, after all, under attack. You realize that, right? We've been talking about uh, in our society how traditional marriage is under attack. And in fact, there are those who believe that the next wave against traditional marriage will involve a move to legalize arrangements like polygamy. There's a hit cable TV drama that expresses how normal what they call big love can be. Sister Wives is another show. It's a reality show. It documents the life of a polygamous family living, uh, which uh, of polygamous family living, excuse me, which includes a patriarch, his four wives, and their 16 children. The patriarch and his wives have claimed they participated with the show because they want to make the public more aware of the polygamous families and to combat societal prejudice. In other words, the show is attempting to promote polygamy to desensitize us as uh, it being sinful by showing us how loving and wonderful and sincere a multiple marriage can be. Now, while it may not directly tempt you and I, Polygamy is an example of how the world is seeking to influence us. We'll see that there are more subtle ways as well. But the world is always trying to undermine the Christian family and the, our definition of marriage and those kinds of things. And, and while we're fighting for traditional marriage, this is going to be the next wave that comes in. Is polygamy sin? Well, yes, it is. Consider just these three things. When God saw that Adam was alone, he made for him a companion. It wasn't another man, and it wasn't multiple companions. It was his wife, Eve. That union between one man and one woman for life remains God's standard for marriage and family. Now, we've already seen in the law from Deuteronomy that kings were commanded to not have multiple wives. And so whatever else you think about Jewish society and tribal living and all of the things that were going on in that day, God said specifically, now, I don't want the king to have more than one wife. And the New Testament holds the leaders of the church to this same standard. One of the requirements for leadership in the church is that you be the husband of one wife. It doesn't mean you have to be married, but it means if you are married, you're married to one woman one man, one woman, for life, that's where God is at. So why did David do this? Well, among the reasons we might cite, for sure it was because that's what was going on in the world around him, the world of the pagans who did not know the God of Israel. This is what kings did. They multiplied wives to themselves. Often it was done to cement a political alliance. At least one of David's wives mentioned here is said to be the daughter of a foreigner. David was doing what the kings in the world did. Now, it's interesting as you read this, the only commentary made in these first verses is that, quote, David grew stronger and stronger. It almost sounds like his multiple marriages were helping him to solidify his rule as a king, helping him to establish his power and influence. And you know what? That's probably true. 
But it remained sin that David had multiple wives in spite of what seemed to be its success. And so God, before there was a king, before there were any kings, when God just given the law to Moses, he anticipates the time when they are going to ask for a king and have a king. And he says, there's some things I don't want the king ever to do. And one of them is to multiply wives to himself. I've said it, there it is. And then, sadly, the first thing that you see David doing, knowing from the time he's a teenager that he's going to be king, that he's God's rightful anointed king, you see him begin to multiply wives to himself because that's what happened out in the world. And it seemed to work for him. You know, you can succumb to the methods of the world and you can be strengthened in your position and your power, but it doesn't make it right if it violates God's nature or character or a commandment. Success, worldly success, is never the measure of our walk with the Lord. Success often has little or nothing to do with outward obedience or inward godliness. We have a tendency, it's a human tendency, all of us have it, to look at a person or a family uh, or anything for that matter, but we look at a person and we think, well, you seem to be doing well. You're... You know, you've got a lot of whatever it is we think is important to have in our society. And so God must be blessing you and your efforts and nothing could be farther from the truth. Because we all know that some of the, uh, you know, I remember, well, here's a story. I remember years ago we were talking to somebody here in town. This is like 25 years ago. And they're saying, hey, we're, we're the biggest church in town. One of our elders said, no, you're not. He said, well, sure we are. And he says, no. The Mormon church is the biggest church in town. Well, I mean, among churches. Well, he didn't get the point. The point was, it's not who's the biggest. That, has, that doesn't play into it. God's not concerned about who the biggest anything is. He's concerned about blessing us because of our obedience. And so we have a tendency to look at outward things when we should be looking at the heart. Now, the fact is, the world promises you success if you adopt its methods, and it often delivers. But at what cost? Well, as we go forward looking at David, we'll see that David's family life was an absolute disaster. David could write psalms. Oh, man. I mean, the guy, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he loved the Lord. He was a fierce warrior, a great commander. Everybody loved him, and he couldn't make it at home. And I, I don't blame him. With all the wives he amassed and all the kids and all the... I mean, it was crazy. His kids start killing each other and raping one another. It's crazy at home. David saw, man, he probably left early and came home late. I got a kingdom to run. I, sh I guess I should say homes because I don't know exactly where they all even lived. It was crazy. His family was a disaster. It was a huge cost of his sin. The world wants to influence our thinking about our household, about our marriage and about our family. Traditional marriage is not the only fight going on. I just pulled a couple of things here that we could talk about as examples. For example, a growing number of politicians are calling for expanding mandatory childhood education to include preschool. They want to require that families with children as young as three send them off to school. I'm not against early childhood education or preschool or play school. 
I am against mandatory government three-year-old education. Maybe they figure that if they get them younger, it'll work out better than it is now because it doesn't seem like anything's really happening. Five years old is too late, I guess. And so let's get your kids when they're three. Uh, and uh, they want to make it mandatory. I, I see it as an assault on the family. There's also an effort, uh, and I know you know this, to influence Christian parents in the area of how we discipline our children. The world has declared war on corporal punishment, on biblical spanking. Most of the countries in the world have already made spanking illegal. It's a criminal act. And if you remember, there was an effort in the California legislature just a while back to do the same thing here. The world calls all corporal punishment hitting and presents it as child abuse. You know, I'm not saying that what happened in my day was better. Actually, I am. But uh, I was getting swats in school up until junior high. It was a commonplace, corporal punishment. And I deserved them. I, in fact, a friend of mine, Kirby Clausen, he and I had a contest to see who could get the most swats. Until, until we got one swat each from Mr. Roosh, our football coach. Because the other teachers were mamby-pamby, you know, uh, bend over. It's like a token swat. And so Mr. Roosh catches us at the wrong lunch period. I think Kirby had 21 swats. Up to that point, I had 20. He was one ahead of me. So we, but, you know, we go down into the gym and into Mr. Roosh's office, and all of a sudden he, asked, he said, hey, you boys, wait here. And he got on the phone and he asked another coach to come in. Now, that had never happened. No one ever needed a witness. <laughs> so the coach comes in. He says, uh, boys, drop your pants. Luckily, we had underwear on. <laughs> Grab your ankles. Are you sure this isn't my lunch period? I mean, maybe I made a mistake. And, you know, he gave us a, a stinging swat. Didn't hurt us. Didn't leave a bruise. Didn't do anything awful. It wasn't abusive. He swatted us each once and then told us to pull our pants up and go outside crying. And we ne- that was the end of the contest. And there was the end of anything having to do with Mr. Roosh. It was after that, it was yes, sir. Uh, now, I'm not glorifying corporal punishment, but it, it, it was commonplace and it worked and it was never considered abusive when it was administered properly. That's just the way things were. It's not like that anymore. Now, certainly it's not happening at school, but now they're telling you it can't happen in your home because it's all hitting And it's all presented as child abuse. Then they tell you that your child isn't sinning. He or she has a syndrome of some sort. Your kid probably needs a psychologist and medication rather than discipline. I understand child abuse. I've seen it. I'm a reporter of child abuse. I know that some kids can have physical and organic problems that need to be treated by specialists. 
But I also know that the vast majority of the problem with kids is sin. And it requires careful, thoughtful, loving, corporal punishment to correct. Here's the real problem. Christians are starting to be influenced by the world's onslaught against spanking. A lot of Christian parents are trending against it. Or if they say they still believe in it, they practice it so infrequently as to have effectively abandoned it. And so, you know, maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you're not. I'm just using it as an example. We're going along. We're living the Christian life. And every turn, the world is saying, we're going to destroy your understanding of the Christian family. We're going to reach into it, we're going to alter it, we're going to change it, we're going to make up our own rules, we're going to take your children, we're going to tell you what you can do with them and what you can't do with them. And, and this is the kind of influence that the world has. And, you know, there are some things we're pretty good about holding off against, but there are other things that start to creep in. It's almost like a compromise because it's such a stressful thing to be against the world. Let's influence the world instead. Let's have great, solid, joyous families that are the envy of non-believers. Let's have the world want to be like us. Do you really want to be like the world? I was like the world. I was the world for 24 years, the first 24 years of my life. It was a hopeless disaster. Nothing good came out of that. Why would I want to go back? Why would I want to be like that? What has the world figured out? If anything, things are worse. I think things are way worse than they were when I was a kid, when I was a kid, everybody had the same Christian standard of behavior in our country. If I did something down the street and my father found out about it, everybody agreed that it was wrong. Now, I don't know if you figured it out, but it's a fight with parents. I remember when Gene was little and he was throwing the newspaper. There was a house on Mulberry. hope it wasn't your house. Throws the paper. Some high school kids are in there, you know, doing their stupid band, you know. So he throws the paper in the driveway, and one of them runs out and throws the paper at him and tries to hit him while he's on his bike. So I call the mom. I say, hey, you know, I'm Gene Pensiero. My son throws your paper. This is what he reported to me today. Thought you needed to know that. She goes, hang on for a second. Let me ask my son. She's gone for a few minutes. She comes back. She goes, My son says your son tried to hit him with the paper. I said, lady, (laughs) I think we all know that's not true. So my 11-year-old boy on his stingray bicycle is attacking your three high schoolers, you know, and thinking he's... I said, listen, why don't we just leave it at that and we just aren't going to throw your paper anymore. She goes, well, okay, I'll talk to him. And that's the way it is. There's just, it's like a warfare. And, and so this is the world, the world is what, so we have an opportunity to say, look, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to raise my family as unto the Lord. Whatever the Bible says to do, hey, I'm going to figure out how to do that. And at the end of it, I, we're going to be the envy of other people in the world. They can say, well, I want to get your children and, and do what to them? Destroy them like all these, uh, no, why don't you learn from us? And who knows what's going to happen legally or through the government or whatever, but at least we will be doing what the Lord has called us to do. That's my goal, and I think it should remain our goal. Now, let's talk about the church. The church is not the new Israel. We have our own destiny. What we're looking at in these chapters is God's elect nation. Don't 
forget that. But we can still look at Israel for examples of timeless spiritual principles. These guys were building something for God. It was a nation. We are building for God as well as we wait for the return of the Lord. Abner is a great example of not just succumbing to the methods of the world. He actively adopted them. When he saw David ascending in popularity and power, he decided he'd throw in with him. It's a story of high-level politicking to get what you want. Verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So uh, Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? And then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? May God do to Abner, and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, a concubine was a female slave who functioned as a surrogate, usually for having children. Kings not only had multiple wives, they had a slew of concubines, the more the merrier, to show what a great king you were. Taking a king's or a former king's concubine, this is pure power politics. It had nothing to do with sex or love or anything like that. You were telling the world you were equal to the king. What belonged to him belonged to you. In this case, Abner also used it to provoke Ishbosheth into an argument. He knew that Ishbosheth would have to say something. He couldn't just keep quiet. And the minute he opened his mouth, he acted like he was wounded and offended. You decla- you're telling me I'm not loyal? Well, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not loyal. I'm going to go over to David now. Uh, and it's, it's some crazy argument, and Ishbosheth can't do anything because Abner's the commander of his army, and he's a pretty bad dude. He kills people for a living. And so he, he decides, I'm not going to get anywhere with Ishbosheth. My idea to set him up as king isn't working. David is definitely going to become the king. I need to figure out a way to be with David. I don't see how that can work out because he ought to kill me. I, you know, for what I've done, he already has a general in Joab. I just killed Joab's brother. I need to come up with a scheme, and he does. In verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying, Also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Wasn't that God's intention, for David to rule over all Israel? Yes, it was, but did God really need Abner, a lying, disloyal opportunist, to bring it about? Was it through power politics that God wanted to advance the nation? I'm going to say no. David responded positively, however, to Abner, and, we, uh, and we've read his one condition. Now drop down to verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. It all sounds so spiritual. 
It's what the Lord had spoken concerning David, except that Abner could care less about what the Lord had spoken until it looked like David would, in fact, defeat Isbesheth, and he, Abner, would lose everything. Verse 20, So Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. It was a great, what we would call a photo op. There was David dining with Abner who had brought 20 men to showcase his own power and influence. And, you know, he was in a sense surrendering to David, coming over to David's side, but he had to do it with a show of strength as if he could have held out but decided not to for the good of everybody. David would rule and Abner, the guy who single-handedly had opposed David by installing a puppet king, he would end up having some place of prominence, so he thought, in this new kingdom. Politically, it was an amazing feat. Spiritually, it stunk. Abner used a spiritual end to justify non-spiritual means. He was motivated by personal selfish ambition. Abner cared only about Abner. I'll give you a sneak peek of next week. Joab isn't going to be happy. He's away on business, and when he comes back, they say, Hey, by the way, Abner was here, and David made an alliance with him, and he says, Watch this. And he calls for Abner to come back and he takes him out into the courtyard and he puts his arm around him and he stabs him and guts him and kills him right where he stands. He said, yeah, this, I'm not going to have this. I'll show you what happens to people who kill my brother. We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> now, obviously there can be Abners in the church, men and women who are motivated by personal selfish ambition. More often, it is some subtle strategy or technique borrowed from the world and implemented in order to achieve a spiritual end. The thing about the world's methods is that they work on a purely physical level. Over the years, I've had uh, lots of different agencies call the church or contact the church and say, look, if you let us come in with our program, we guarantee we can raise this much money or this much income. They guarantee it. And, and they guarantee it because they have techniques that they've borrowed from the world by which to do it. And in some ways, they're more successful among Christians because Christians have a sense of wanting to do what's right even when they're guilted into it. Uh, and so we can borrow things from the world and they can be successful, but they're not from God. One author has said, and I like this, he says, Christianity advances by proclamation and persuasion and prayer and by being persecuted. By proclamation, we share the word of God. By persuasion, which is not manipulation, persuasion is is impassioned pleas to receive the Lord and to walk as His disciple. And then prayer, trusting the Lord, and if necessary, by persecution. And you will be persecuted if you're doing what the Lord wants you to do. The opposite of this would be feeling intimidated, being manipulated. Sadly, that happens too often in churches. It's wrong, and we want to guard against it. We should be motivated by grace, not manipulated by guilt, to walk with the Lord and then to serve Him. 
Let me give you a biblical example. There's, there's lots of examples that you could choose from, but most of them are just somebody's pet peeve. When I looked at this, I thought, well, let me research, you know, let me type in, you know, blah, 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 and stuff. And always what comes up is somebody's hatred for contemporary worship. It's like, you know, the world is borrowing, or the church is borrowing from the world, and they have this crazy, you know, worship that is entertaining. And, and the church is being entertained. It's not really worshiping God. And what they really mean, the co- what that is all code for is, I hate guitars. And I don't like Christian choruses. We should only sing the hymns. And, you know, that's a matter of style. We're not talking about style here. There are all kinds of styles. All kinds of styles. God loves a variety of styles of worship and ministry. That's great. We're talking about something substantive. We're talking about substance issues where you try to accomplish a spiritual end with non-spiritual worldly means. I'll give you a biblical example. In a few chapters, King David's going to attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle where it belonged. He wants to establish worship in the tabernacle, have the presence of God there again. Excellent idea. In order to transport the ark, David builds a new ox cart to carry it. Not an excellent idea. At one point, the cart falters, the ark becomes unsteady, and one of its attendants, Uzzah, reaches out to steady it, and God strikes him dead on the spot. He kills him. Not what David expected. He was pretty upset left the ark somewhere else until he went back and read God's word. The portion dealing with the proper transporting of the ark. He found out that the ark was to be carried not on a new cart drawn by oxen, but on the shoulders of the priests. And so the priests set out with the ark six paces. They offer sacrifice. Nobody dies. And then they bring the, uh, they bring the ark back and establish it in the tabernacle. What David learned was that God has his own method for building the household of faith. And we need to always discover what that method is and reject whatever the world is trying to bring in to the church. God's method always involves things like love and gentleness and kindness and selflessness and sacrifice. In each situation, we're to find the heart of God and then motivate people by grace and never, ever manipulate them by guilt. You know, I'm not saying what other churches do is wrong. I, I really hate to criticize the church or individual churches because I'm not responsible before the Lord for them. Uh, But... If you, if you want to ever know, if you just look at what we, if you're wondering what all this means, just look at what we do and what we don't do and the way we do it and you'll have a pretty good idea of what we think is biblical and scriptural and what we think might be worldly that we want to avoid. And, and I would hope that as a leadership, we do it because we're trying to represent the character of Jesus Christ. We're trying to show His grace. And so uh, there can be, you know, proclamation and persuasion and a desire to see people discipled. But once you start to manipulate people, once you start to flatter people, once you start to bring in the the ways of the world, you can be successful in a worldly way, but not in a spiritual way. 
And you know, I, I you know, I, I don't think I'm that old, but I'm pretty old. Uh, I'm older than you think. I just happen to be well preserved. Uh, everybody's always surprised that I'm only 35. No, that's not true. That's a lie. That's a lie. In the Old Testament, I'd be struck dead. But anyway, uh, you know, as I get older, I think more about seeing the Lord. And um, I want it to be as cool as possible there, if you understand what I mean. Because the Bible says when you stand before the Lord, He's going to burn away things that didn't bring Him glory. Methods and motives that we had that really weren't from Him. They could get pretty hot. I'll be saved, so as by fire, the Bible says. I really think more and more about the Lord, seeing Him, and I'd like to get that part as minimal as possible. So the Lord said, hey, you did what I wanted you to do. You were faithful in the little things. Uh, You represented my character and my nature. You didn't put trips on people. I want our church to be like that. And, And you know what? That's the only measure of success that there is, is what the Lord thinks. And we know what the Lord thinks because we can read it in His Word. And so the world, it's going to continue to attack your family. Whatever your family is right now, maybe it's just you, maybe you're divorced, maybe you're remarried, who knows, the world is coming against your family. And whatever Christian principles you want to build on, it is going to try to erode legally, but also just in your mind and heart. It's a fight. We want to stay on board with the Lord and let His Spirit lead us. And the church is always going to be bombarded by Offers from the world to help. Techniques from the world that are sneaking in. Hey, you can't help people with prayer and counseling anymore. You need pop psychology. You need to turn people over to secular professionals who don't know the Lord. They can really help God's people. That's what Paul the Apostle would have done if he, if he knew better. You know, Jesus was uneducated. If he had a college degree, he would have sent you to Freud. Because after all, who knows more about the human psyche, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, or Sigmund Freud? And and essentially, the church, I think, over the years has sold out. And they said, well, we think Freud knows more about it. We think Jung knows more about it. We think Maslow knows knows more about it. We think B.F. Skinner knows more about it. And uh, we need to just center in on the Word of God. We can do it with style. We can do it with flair. We can have fun. And we ought to. And people ought to look at it and say, man, I want that. This is what the world is telling me I ought to be like. That's ridiculous. I don't see any fruit. I don't see any development. I don't see any maturity. This isn't helping me or my children at all, but I want what you have. And what we have is that person who's risen from the dead. It's Jesus Christ. Amen.